when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. In this installment of our centennial series on companies that are over 100 years old, we're talking to Barnes & Noble CEO James Daunt. Now, I'll be honest with you, I did not know Barnes & Noble was over 100 years old. I have always thought of it as a 90s company, the big bad chain bookstore that ransacks small town shops right alongside Walmart. But the history is way deeper than that. Barnes & Noble was first established in 1917 in New York City, and it remains America's largest bookstore chain. The last few decades have thrown some hurdles in Barnes & Noble's way, however. Far from being the monster that inspired the plot of the movie You've Got Mail, it's had to face down a new Goliath called Amazon and the general decline of big box retail stores. But after years of closures and declining revenues, Barnes & Noble was bought out by activist investors in 2019, who installed Daunt as CEO, and he's managed to turn things around by doing two things. First, he's decentralized operations of the stores. He lets each store act like a local bookshop, and he's given his booksellers more control over what titles they sell and display. He immediately ended a system that allowed publishers to pay for special placement in bookstores, which he says corrupted the entire system in service of short-term profits. Second, he's using Barnes & Noble's scale to build a purchasing and distribution pipeline that serves as the rest of the book industry's competitor to Amazon. This is about as decoder as it gets. Daunt managed to rescue Barnes & Noble by upending the org chart and undoing the old culture, while simultaneously pivoting the business model. James started his career as an independent bookseller, and as you'll hear in this episode, he definitely still sees himself that way. He is an evangelist of reading who seems spiritually driven to encourage more people to engage with and buy books. At the same time, he's clear that his bosses at private equity company Elliott Advisors are assuming he'll make them a bunch of money. James also passionately believes that there's no better way to discover a new book than by going into a bookstore, and that that experience can't really be replicated online by Amazon or BookTok or anyone else. We get into all of it. We get into the culture wars and J.K. Rowling. We get into book ban bills in states across the country. And we talk about how Barnes & Noble went from being the bully on the block to competing with Amazon. This is a really fun episode. James Daunt, CEO of Barnes & Noble. Here we go. James Daunt, you are the CEO of Barnes & Noble and of Waterstones in the UK. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to you. Barnes & Noble is a legendary retailer in the United States. It has been around for over 100 years. Let me just start at the very beginning. You're somewhat a new CEO. You took over in 2019. 
did it factor into your decision-making to take this job that this was a hundred-year-old brand that you had to somehow chaperone into its next hundred years? It was the last, or is the last, sort of large bookseller in, in the United States. Frankly, with so few independent bookstores, if you want bookstores uh, in the country, then Barnes & Noble needs to survive. And it would take a, a very, very, very long time for anybody to recreate it. You were yourself the owner of a small bookstore chain before you took over as CEO of Waterstones. Actually still am, in present tense. Right. So you compete with yourself? I compete with myself. How does that work? I have my own bookstore, small independent in London, and it coexists alongside uh, Waterstones, <laughs> which I also run. Evidently, my first and true love is, is my own bookstores. Do, do the staff of that bookshop ever come to you and say, this big Goliath is killing us? No, it's, it, it isn't like that. I mean, the, the Goliath is Amazon. And the reality for, for booksellers is that you need all of the infrastructure, independent booksellers, that is, you need the infrastructure from publishers, all the distribution and the reps and, uh, and focus on physical bookstores to survive. And that it, that's really only there because there's this great huge chain, uh, Waterstones in the UK, Barnes & Noble in the United States, without which probably that would fall away and it would just sort of end up being you know, a few independents sort of trying to scrabble around and survive alongside a industry which would, would sort of has publishers on one side and Amazon on the other. So no, as an independent, one looks at now looks at these uh, big chains as, as a friend, not an enemy. So you had started your own small chain. You became the CEO of Waterstones. That seems like it gave you control over at least the continued existence of the infrastructure the independent bookshops need, which I want to dive into that because that is a unique arrangement, I think, for most kinds of industries where there's a dominant big tech player. So I want to, I want to talk about that. And then you became the CEO of Barnes & Noble after... Elliott Management, which is a sort of famously activist private equity company, had, had bought Barnes & Noble. What was that conversation like? I'm already the CEO of a big book shop chain in the UK. An activist private equity company has bought another legendary chain of booksellers, the biggest in the country. I'll be the CEO of that as well. Well, I think it's, it's following the same sort of broad logic, which is that to survive as an independent bookseller in the United Kingdom, one needed Waterstones to survive with, with a certain amount of arrogance, believed that I had an answer as to how to do that, which incidentally is simply to stop managing it as a chain and <laughs> let each of the stores behave like an independent bookseller. And then we got to the point where obviously Barnes & Noble was also getting itself into significant trouble. And we look across from, you know, the very, very small United Kingdom to the US where uh, the market is dramatically bigger, but where it's exactly the same publishers, all headquartered in New York City, by the way, publishing the same books as we are selling in the United Kingdom and seeing a structure of the trade, which is potentially going to fall to a simple single retail partner in Amazon, um, obviously an online partner only, with no effective physical bookstore presence. And wherever you get a structure of a trade in, of that sort, then it probably is going to cross the Atlantic and be imposed on, on the United Kingdom. And that would have been extremely unwelcome, obviously. Was that part of your pitch to, to Elliot? Hey, I, I see this thing that's about to happen. Let me take over Barnes & Noble, and I will at least ameliorate the problem or hold it at bay. 
as well as potentially succeed? Well, no, obviously my pitch to them was you're going to make tons of money because the, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, the pitch, that's the pitch that's going to work. Um, but I was able to you know, say, well, look, you know, we've, we've done it perfectly successfully in the United Kingdom. And if we did the same thing in the United States, you will, it'll be a very good investment for you. So that was the pitch. But uh, the reality in terms of the motivation to do it is that one, you know, I'm a bookseller. I love bookstores. I think bookstores have a, a real importance within communities and um, a value in their own right. And therefore, keeping them alive and, and prospering was really important. We've talked to a number of CEOs that sort of came into the picture as part of a private equity deal. The arrangement of that, the chronology of that is kind of variable. Sometimes the PE companies go shopping and they find a CEO later. Sometimes they have a CEO. The CEO goes shopping for an industry where private equity can make change with their amount of money. How did it work for you? It's always worked for me that I, I've been sort of motivated, as I say, to run really good bookshops. And to the extent one has a partner alongside you um, to write the initial checks um, and, and obviously prosper from writing that uh, check, you know, that that that's a necessary part of it, and I originally actually had a, a Russian businessman who who did provided the backing for the acquisition of Waterstones, and the, and then as you say, Elliot, who are the private equity owner of of Waterstones and now Barnes and Noble. So I mean, I think we 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 have a common purpose, um, or at least we have a common goal. Two different motivations. Did you go to Elliot and say we should do Barnes and Noble? Do they come to you? They bought Waterstones, so that that was the first step. Um, it was only once they bought Waterstones that the obvious fact of of the what seemed to be the impending fate of Barnes and Noble, and and then the very public one because Barnes and Noble was put on the block. It was it was put up for sale, and we were a very obvious purchaser. So when you took over in 2018, it, it was on the block. The company was in a tailspin. 150 stores had closed since the peak in 2008. There was management turnover. Its competitors in the United States were failing. Borders had failed. It seems like what Barnes & Noble and Borders before it were trying to do were to compete head-on with Amazon, right? To take in a bunch of centralized management function, to increase efficiency, to use the stores as warehouses, to distribute online, to effectively do what Walmart is trying to do with Amazon today in, in some much larger and disparate way. But as, as it relates to books, the strategy for Barnes & Noble seemed to be, we'll just be Amazon in a different way. And that had failed. Why do you think that had failed so badly? Yeah, I think put it another way, they were hiring in various executives, one after another from other retailers, each of them bringing a very rational chain retail philosophy, which is that you try and run a very consistent retail operation, that you use your scale and leverage both for operational efficiencies and purchasing efficiencies. And that works pretty much across the board, whether you're Best Buy, Staples, Zara, H&M, whatever it is. Um, uh, each of those seeks to put an identical store pretty much in front of its customers in a very coherent, very precise, planogrammed uh, retail offer. And that's what they wanted to do with the bookstores. Uh, the trouble with one, when you've got Amazon as a competitor, you have to give people a reason to come into your bookstore. It has to be interesting and engaging. And for books, that isn't a single defined proposition. You, you, you actually end up with a blended average of everything that satisfies no one. 
And there was also a misunderstanding that it was simply about racking up the books, as many titles as possible, so that if you woke up in the morning and you wanted a book, you drove to your bookstore, you walked in, you asked a bookseller, they took you to the book, you bought the, you took, picked up the book and you walked, bought it and you went away. Well, Amazon does all of that process <laughs> dramatically better. What you'd left and, and forgotten about is that people come to bookstores to enjoy themselves. They come to meet other people. They come for the social experience. They come to browse and look at books. That, it, that it's a very sort of richly textured, actually emotional engagement that customers have with bookstores. And independent booksellers do that brilliantly. They understand their customers. They curate for their customers. And the, the big chains had simply stopped doing that. Well, I don't think they'd ever done it in truth. Um, and therefore, the business was failing. There was a time when the big chains were somewhat homogenous, and that was the threat to the book industry, right? Barnes & Noble at its peak was a national monster. It could drive the cultural discourse in this country by dint of just putting a book at the front of the store. Whether or not the book was good, the independent booksellers hated Barnes & Noble for this reason. And like you said, the stores were getting bigger and bigger and bigger in a way that I think the last time I walked into one of the giant Barnes and Noble stores in sort of the early 2000s, I was shocked. I was like, I don't even think I can make it through the entire store. This is this is a warehouse. This is Costco for books. That was a very different moment, right? When when Barnes and Noble was the behemoth. Now you're saying it's a necessary condition of having bookshops. How have you made it so that people don't think you're the behemoth? I mean, then was when there were dramatically more independent bookstores, and you were sitting in your 3,000 square foot indie bookstore, and then a 35,000 monster opens up down the road from you. And this is in the pre-Amazon times. Um, and, and that just was an impossible thing to compete with. It had the cafe, it had all the music and movies and, and vinyl and CDs and everything. It was a much richer a retail environment. So that killed off the indies. But also the, the less good indies were also killed off by the same thing that was ultimately to kill borders and, and drive um, so much um, a downward spiral at Barnes & Noble, which was Amazon. Now, these same huge stores are really the only store across great swathes of the United States. Um, and they are actually still magnificent. I mean, I was in um, I was in Cleveland, Ohio, um, going to a store there. And, I mean, you have to laugh as you approach it. I mean, this vast store. <laughs> and, it, and it actually had writers' names engraved, or does have writers' names engraved across uh, all around the store. And on the front, it had Thoreau and Walden, which made sense to me. Uh, Orwell, which was an interesting choice. And Moliere. <laughs> You know, there was a time when Barnes & Noble actually celebrated Moliere as one of the great sort of literary names that it wanted to put before its customers. So there was also an aspiration to it, which is quite remarkable. And that, it's that aspirational side that I, I think is so valuable. Um, and they're very, very inclusive spaces. There's nothing intimidating about them. Their very size welcomes everybody into them. And I think that part within a community which allows kids falling out of school at 3.34 p.m. just to pour into a Barnes & Noble, no obligation to buy anything, chat away, look at books, have fun, maybe buy a cup of coffee, and then be off. It's that it's sort of the, the democratic side of Barnes & Noble, which is, is so powerful. But one, I want to be very clear that I think Molly Air plays in Middle America. I grew up in Middle America because Molly Ringwald there's a name check in the movie The Breakfast Club. 
<laughs> spike sales for decades since the 80s. Uh, I think that's where that comes from. I, I don't have data, but there's just a part of me that says that's why that's on the door there. So you, you, this is a long history. And I just wanted to talk about this history, right? Barnes & Noble was 100 years old. It occupied a dominant place in American culture for a minute. It occupied a place in the American economy alongside Walmart for a minute as the thing that would threaten local economies. And now you're saying, oh, this thing kind of is the local economy, but it, but the changes you have made are to make it even more local, to make it smaller, to make it more representative and in service to the communities that it, it, these stores are located in. That's a lot of change. You come in, you're the new CEO, failing business. What did you see and what were the first set of changes that you made? Well, what I saw was this large central structure, which is necessary if you want to run the stores in a very disciplined uh, manner, which was also incidentally hugely expensive. And I also saw these great, you know, amazing bookstores with good people uh, running them. Booksellers are the same tribe of people wherever you meet them. They're the same in the UK, the same in Japan, they're the same everywhere. You, you know when you're with booksellers, they all more introverted, more cerebral people. And I knew that if we could simply strip away that central instruction and that central machine, one, we were going to save an awful lot of money uh, because we wouldn't need those people and we wouldn't need the very expensive Manhattan offices in which they were residing. Um, and secondly, that I thought that if we did appeal directly to the booksellers, that not all of them, but some of them would start running much, much better bookstores. Most of them it probably wouldn't make too much difference to, and then some would get worse. And then we could start on that exercise of going around the ones that are, are doing less well and partnering up, them up with the ones that, that were doing really good stuff, and, and that we would start a virtuous cycle in which we steadily improved the stores. And I got on with it straight away. And we had, by the time I joined in September 2019, and by the end of the year, we had halved our central workforce, exited our very, very expensive New York offices, two very large ones, uh, moved into a couple of, of empty floors above a, one of our stores on Manhattan, and managed, thank goodness, to do that just before COVID came along, <laughs> because otherwise our landlords would not have taken back those very, very expensive offices, um, and we'd have been in much worse shape uh, when, when, obviously, what was a brutal time um, uh, erupted on us in sort of well, we, we, we were fully into it by February uh, 2020. Let me retell that story uh, in a slightly more rude way. A private equity company buys a storied national retail chain. It installs a CEO from a different country who comes in and says, I know what to do, fires half of the executive workforce, starts shutting down offices and thinking about closing down stores or ranking stores based on their regional performance. That's a private equity story, right? We come in, you've come in, you're slashing costs, you're going to try to increase revenues, and you set of performance metrics is going to get rolled out store by store. That's not you. I can tell that that's not what you were thinking. Oh, no, but no, just no. from an abstract the, yeah. level, right? I mean, that's the story here. How did you preserve the culture or keep people calm through that set of changes? I think we explained exactly what we were doing and, and the rationale for it. We're saying to the to the booksellers and, and the bookstore managers, look, you, you really have to take accountability and ownership of your stores. We are going to give you the tools to actually 
prove that you are good booksellers. We're not going to tell you anymore what books you're going to have. We're not going to tell you what books to reorder. You've got to make those decisions yourselves. You've got to decide how you display them. You're no longer going to have planograms telling you exactly where to put all of your books in the front. You've got to decide. Scratch your heads, think about it, and put them <laughs> as, as, as best you judge. And not unreasonably, a lot of them, the, the, much, the intelligent ones, uh, came back and said, that's really difficult. The less intelligent one said, great, let's get on with it. The, the, it, it because it's, it's really difficult. Um, and from a, a head office perspective, there's nothing personal when you have one of these sort of great huge ructions. Um, it's not saying, you know, no, you're useless, off you go. I, I, I think you're a bad bookseller, bad buyer, bad merchant, bad whatever. We're saying, look, guys, we're simply stopping doing a very significant amount of what we used to do. And those of you who are in service to the stores, so IT people, you know, the, the, the tech side um, and, and the rest, you, 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 nothing changes in your world. In fact, we're probably going to invest in more of you. But those of you who are presently dictating to the stores the kind of things that we are giving to the stores to do, uh, you no longer have a job. Nothing personal. And it, it was a good employment market then, so most of them went straight off to other jobs and, and I think didn't feel that it was any personal judgment among themselves. And therefore, for everybody who was left, it, it felt probably a, a relatively positive as far as these sort of quite traumatic things can be. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll get into how book talk is influencing the book business. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation, Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. We're back. I always joke that Decoder is at its heart a, a podcast about org charts. You're describing a massive <laughs> org chart change, right? And my theory is that what does it what tool does a CEO have to solve problems? The first one is the org chart. And you come into this huge problem. And you upend the org chart. You decentralize your org chart. How is the company structured now? It is very decentralized. Um, we we do most of our sort of heavy lifting from a merchant perspective out in the stores. We are continuing to unnecessarily invest in the things that support the stores. So so we've probably got more infrastructure centrally to do that. Um, the store development teams, the construction guys um, who who do all of the the, up, the refurbishments and, and new store build-outs, you know, m- many more of those, um, and a lot of investment in IT and logistics. But otherwise, we're very light touch. All of our book buying is is done by essentially one person with two assistants, and that was a team probably of forty or fifty before, uh, because that's all we need to do centrally. The rest is all done out in the stores. How many direct reports do you have now? Oh, I'm I'm very um house, unhouse trained as as a as a corporate person. <laughs> I had my own business for a very very long time, and and I still run this one as as in, in the same way that I do my own. And I have a lot of people who I speak to 
a lot, but fairly informally. And I think it's all about conversation, constant engagement. And I think everything, everybody's overlapping. I see uh, our, our org chart is not some sort of hierarchical structure. I think it's something much more like a, a solar system. Are you, are you the sun? <laughs> no, no, I'm just one of these sort of <laughs> orbiting circles, which sort of overlap with 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 others, and and you do need somebody in the middle, and that is, if I if I play any role, which is to constantly articulate that this is what we're doing, to banish hierarchy, um, because I think hierarchy is is the thing that that constantly undermines us, because with hierarchy there comes a lot of ego, um, and a lot of desire either to take the praise and and um, and benefit for whatever is being done um, to offload the cause for anything that is going wrong rather than collectively dealing with things so I think that's it's changing that ethos and we've changed from being a very masculine company to being one that's probably much more feminine now and I don't know whether that's partly in in reflection of that sort of flattening of the organizational structure wait un- unpack that for me what what made the company masculine and what do you think makes it feminine now? I think in in traditional retail businesses tend to be quite masculine and certainly sort of very hierarchical uh, structures are often dominated by men, uh, particularly men of a certain age. And and obviously this is not a greenhouse in which as a, as a <laughs> late 50-year-old uh, male I can, I can really start slinging rocks around in. But, it, but when you flatten organizations and go have a lot more young people working in a much more collaborative way, you, you tend to end up with a structure which is very equal um, uh, in terms of the, the balance. And I think more cooperative for that, uh, which is, if you were predominantly masculine, that is to feminize it. Is that reflected in the demographics of the workforce as well? Are you more feminine overall? Do you employ more women? I think bookselling always has, but um, we've always had this sort of very peculiar dichotomy of of having a very masculine uh, leadership at the same time as having a uh, initially a, a very equal workforce and and actually one that probably tilts towards the feminine so do you are you track that now or are you is it more equal now it's certainly more equal and I think we do track it we track gender pay and and also obviously diversity as well which is um, something that that is also bedeviled book selling and and, and publishing generally we have always typically been very white uh, middle class. There's something there around the attractiveness of bookselling as a career and how that's very accepted in in the traditionally more sort of white middle class educated parts of society and and more aspirational parts of society look on it, particularly the poor pay within our industry, uh, as something that that they don't really want part of. Um, again, how how we broaden ourselves um, and broaden ourselves out of an, an educated elite, um, which is where we've tended to concentrate. This was the criticism of Barnes & Noble at its sort of peak, right? That it was imposing a white middle class cultural hegemony on the United States because it would drop in, it would kill your local booksellers, and then whatever books it wanted would become the books. Is that something you're actively trying to do? Like, I'm just talking to you now. Yes, the private equity company wants to make a lot of money. I still want to talk about that part. But it seems like a big part of your vision here is to undo the centralized cultural relevance of Barnes & Noble. I, th- I think the centralized part, yes, not the cultural relevance. I think we have a huge part to pay in in um, promoting, positively promoting education and reading and engagement with cultural issues. But I think we should always reflect the communities in which we are. And when you do 
decentralize that to the individual stores, you get something much healthier than when it was directed from New York City, that's for sure. This brings me sort of into the classic decoder question. We say decoder is a show about this question. It's really a show about org charts, but you can't sell that quite as well as this. But this is the classic decoder question, which is how do you make decisions? What's your framework? Right, You've made a lot of decisions in taking over Barnes & Noble. You've made a lot of decisions about where the cultural authority of the company that sells books should be. How do you make those decisions? You always make sure that it's going to work in the medium and long term. Nothing is done for short-term expediency. And you should, I think, test it always for, is this what we want for us in the medium and long term? Always, is it right for my booksellers? Because lots of decisions cannot be. But if, if you absolutely, and I have a great advantage of having spent 25-odd years as a bookseller, a shop floor bookseller, so I do understand what it's like to work in a bookstore. If you make it right for the booksellers, then that will almost certainly be right for the customers because happy booksellers make for happy engagements with customers. And is it fair? And everything you do should be fair. And, and as an executive, you are often making decisions about how you're paying people, how you're promoting people, how you're uh, changing people's jobs and the like, are you happy to stick that on the notice board by the coffee machine and for everybody to read it and think, yeah, that's fair enough. One big decision you made in taking over both Waterstones and now Barnes & Noble was to get rid of what were called the publisher co-op fees. Well, the publishers actually had quite a stake in the success of the bookstores, but they took a bunch of control in return. Explain what that was specifically so the audience knows and then why you chose to undo it. Well, we had things called co-op and promo fees, which were uh, amounts of money which were paid really for the placement of books. And that would either be that you took a certain number of books, and in which case dollars were attached to that, um, or and then in particular that they would be placed in, in particular parts of the store everywhere. And that was extremely attractive to publishers who take enormous risks with books. You know, they pay these upfront amounts for when they buy books, uh, and then they need to be sure they're going to sell them um, if they want to mitigate that risk. And one of the key ways to mitigate the risk is to pay the chain bookstore to put it in the front of the store, or, or actually even to put it in the bestseller lists. You know, um, and and I would, we would charge an amount of money to be number one, two, three, four, five, obviously in descending order, more money to be put on the front table. Front of the front table is different amount of money to back of the front table and so on. A significant part of the store was sold uh, to publishers for a very, very large amount of money. Uh, the trouble with that is that obviously by definition means you have the same bookstores everywhere. And by definition, you're taking away the curation of the stores from the booksellers. It is being agreed in exchange for money in offices in New York City. Uh, and we had to end that and end it completely as, as we did. I mean, just literally haven't taken a, a cent uh, either at Waterstones or Barnes & Noble from the day I joined. And that completely then changes the nature of bookselling and allowed one to tell um, our bookstores, you know, you're, you're free now. You do what ever you like. And for publishers, actually, that's, some of it was great because they no longer had to pay and we, you know, the good book still gets put everywhere up front um, because, you know, Prince Harry's book at the moment, you, <laughs> there isn't a single Waterstones or Barnes & Noble that you will walk into that won't have it front and center and it didn't cost them a dime. But what it's also allowed us to do is bring forward the books that each individual store likes. And, and so we have much more sort of unpredictability around what becomes bestsellers. 
what you're describing is something that has a much more local feel to it, right? Where the, the local bookstores get to look at their communities, look at who their customers are, adjust the store to them. Then there's a just a basic marketing level here, which is you have to go tell the local community that this bookstore reflects your interest. You have to get them to show up and walk in the door. And that's all happening in parallel to things like the Prince Harry book, which are national, international unifying phenomena. That's happening in parallel to things like book talk, which is people on TikTok talking about books, sort of flattening the discourse around the country. What's the tension there? Do you see that tension? Do you have a centralized buyer that's saying, all right, this is blowing up on TikTok. All of the stores are going to need to have this book in, in making that decision, or is that happening still at the local level? No, it's happening at the local level. And I think we like looking at book talk and, and TikTok and saying, oh, you know, it's amazing. You know, Madeline Miller is becoming this massive song of Achilles is this huge success. And, and obviously from a for a narrative, that's what we need to do. But the actual way the book talk works is at a local level. It's innumerable numbers of book talk communities that are swirling around promoting different books all the time and actually what it is in different parts of the country. And uh, I would say 600 times, we've got roughly 600 stores, 600 different communities are interacting with book talk in their own special way. Occasionally that will sort of come across and, and a few books will become massive sellers, but that's the froth. What's really going on underneath is lots and lots of, you know, kids just getting excited about books themselves and it's moving very, very fast. Because uh, we employ quite a lot of those kids ourselves, that, that's the, the ones having the Saturday jobs, the after-school jobs, and, and uh, in the stores generally, we're very alert to it. Uh, and because we just leave them to get on with it, um, I think it's driven a massive part of, of our success. So I know I think we were very lucky to have, or the good fortune to have uh, liberated the stores at precisely the moment when it was most powerful uh, for them to be able to adapt quickly and, and seamlessly to whatever was going on in their local community. It's worked brilliantly for us. The background of this entire conversation has been Amazon and the necessary scale of a company like Barnes & Noble to compete with Amazon's dominance, right? Amazon shows up to a publisher, says, we're going to order all of the books you can print and Amazon is very pay to play. They operate one of the largest advertising marketplaces in the entire industry. And we'll make sure that you sell a lot of them. They have the Kindle system. They can make sure that the books are promoted on the, on the Kindles when the Kindles are turned off. They just have a huge amount of efficiency that publishers can go to and just participate in. When we're describing a decentralized Barnes and Noble, it seems like you need to have the scale to go have the publisher conversations and say, we operate this many hundred stores. We move this many books. We have a construction team that goes around refurbishing the stores. There's all these things where the scale provides you with uh, the operating leverage, the cost efficiency, all the, all the things. Where's the trade-off? Where do you say, okay, here's a place where the efficiency actually costs us in terms of quality experience? Well, I, I would slightly challenge that Amazon is a very effective bookseller. I think it's a hugely efficient fulfiller of whatever you want to buy, but you have to know what you want to buy. And they are extremely efficient about putting in front of customers the brand name authors, the brand name new books. By brand name, I mean from the really established authors. They do it through the pre-orders, but they are not effective at discovery. They are really terrible as a place in which they can put in front of you the book that you never thought you'd want to read, where you have no reason to read. You've got no tether to it at all. Whereas a bookstore is, is precisely the place that does that, where you pick up the book that you never thought you would want to read, might read, could 
even think about reading by an author you've never heard of until that moment when you pick up the book or when a bookseller says, look at that, it's or read that when you next come in or that, I love that or whatever it is. Those All those small little recommendations that are personal and are able to attach themselves to books that otherwise have nothing going for them at all. Amazon is terrible at discovery. And I think publishers are slowly realizing that that actually if you want to move beyond the brand names of the past, you're going to need to find a way to promote them. Um, and I would point to the bestseller charts when I joined Barnes & Noble. And every single book on that is something you've heard of. It's James Patterson times three, four. It's McConnelly. It's John Grisham. It's on and on. There are, there are people on that who who died many, many decades ago, and, and it's, they're under a trademark. There, there is very little new coming through. That's what booksellers do. And now Barnes & Noble, I think, is, is becoming very, very powerful in that. And the reason we do it is because although we don't do anything centrally, nonetheless, we are a single company, and there's a lot of chat between booksellers. There's lots of calls of, we've read this, we've been successful with this, has anybody looked at this? And that creates a sudden momentum around books, which otherwise would have been quite out of sight, I think, really for the industry as a whole. And then if Barnes & Noble does that, Amazon sells a ton of them at that point, because then Kindle gets going, as you say, Audible gets going, the big box guys, the Walmarts and the Costcos and, and so on, they start then ordering the books. But these are of new authors. You know, Bonnie Garmus, who was our um, book of the year this year, voted for by booksellers, was a absolutely massive bestseller for uh, Barnes & Noble. But our market share stayed much where it is, 30-ish percent of, of the market, uh, because everybody else sold it as well. But she's an author that I think, without the efforts of the Barnes & Noble booksellers, would not have had this astonishing success. It's inconceivable that she would have done. There is a, a bit of a tension there. It might be a healthy one. It might be a constructive one. That you're saying, okay, we employ all the kids on Saturday mornings and after school. They're on Book Talk. Book Talk has become a sensational discovery method for books, for book communities. We're feeding it with our own employees. We're receiving the early part of the return of the discovery. There's internal chatter inside of our company to accelerate the momentum of sales. And then the big box retailers capture the bulk of the market share. That seems like a tension. It might be exactly where you want to sit, but that seems like a tension you could point at and say, we should, we should get more of that. Yeah. Though I, I mean, personally, I don't see it that way. I think the more reading there is going on in, in the community, the better it is ultimately for us that we, if, if you're true to what you do and, and are constantly promoting books. And, and by the way, much as I, love bookstores and booksellers, we sit in the second rung beneath public librarians and public libraries. They're the true heroes of, of our industry. And they don't sell a single book. They're sitting in there doling them out for free. Um, but what we do is, is encourage this engagement with books. And it does mean there are more books being sold in Walmart than would otherwise be. But it also equally means there are more books on people's bookshelves in homes. There are more homes where Book ownership is an established norm. And with that, ultimately, will come a more prosperous time for us as booksellers. And we should never resent what the other guy is doing. I, I by the way, have utmost respect for Amazon. I think they do an, a, a completely brilliant job um, 
and, and particularly good at, at democratizing books. If you want a book and you don't have access to a bookstore, Amazon will get it to you. <laughs> uh, they've driven down the price of books. They've made it really competitive. And they forced bookstores out of their complacency to become really good places that justify their existence. So I think all of that is very positive. There's a split there with Amazon, right? Amazon is this centralized, extremely efficient distribution funnel. As you said, they're not good at anything other than sort of demand or intent-based purchasing. You show up, you know what you want, Amazon will get it to you oftentimes by the next day. Then there's what you're talking about, which is the retail endpoint, the experience of being in a bookstore, people chatting, the workers telling you what to read, recommendations, the sort of curated table that is not pay for play. If you were to start Barnes & Noble over again, would you need the retail endpoints or would you build the sort of efficient distribution chain that is allowing not only in this moment your retail endpoints to exist, but also independent bookshops to exist that plug into it? I, you need physical bookshops to have proper discovery. And I think physical bookshops have, they are the things that I love and which are sort of my vocational commitment. So if, if, I, if I understood the question right, we sort of... Are they necessary? Well, are they necessary for Barnes & Noble, right? Which now it seems like the infrastructure of the company is at scale, but really the stores are acting much more like independent bookshops. Yes, and, and the, 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 it is possible that there could have been a world in which there would have been far more independent booksellers and properly run, properly invested uh, independents out there that could have given something close to the coverage that Barnes & Noble now gives. But the reality is that the that w one of the things that you need from scale, and I, I know this as an independent bookseller, is it's very, very difficult to expand um, as an independent. The capital that's required to open up a bookstore, um, the, the huge levels of investment in stock as well as the premises, um, the inherent lack of profitability in our industry always has been, and it's the same in every single country in the world, uh, where the vast bulk of the, the profits of the business are captured by the the manufacturer, the publisher, um, and the author, uh, and the retailer is is sort of operating on these very very thin margins, and that's very difficult for independents to do anything more than be what the vast majority of independents are, which is a single store. The number of independents with more than one store is uh, extremely small. The number of of independents who are growing um, is is minuscule. So this is this is why you need the big guy. Um, in, in there. Otherwise, you're just not going to have enough bookstores. Now, why is it that the retailer holds the, the stick in almost every other sector, uh, but it's the manufacturer which holds the stick in yeah. uh, in, in the world of books um, is, is an interesting one. Um, and I think it's down to the, the, the peculiar uh, nature of, of books where uh, it is the creativity, it's the author who actually has all, all of the, the power. And, and whereas, you know, if, if you're selling shoes or um, uh, you're running a stationary selling company or whatever it is, it's the manufacturer who you need the retailer and he can go and say, well, if I'm not going to sell your eraser, I'm going to sell somebody else's or pencil sharpener or whatever it is. Uh, in books, it's, it's, uh, it lies with the author and publishers ultimately control the author. Do you spend time talking to TikTok, to Tumblr, wherever else the kids are discovering books and saying, what are you seeing? Can we get ahead? We should share data. No, that would that would be sort of completely counter to my ethos, which is to 
encourage the stores to be doing that and encouraging the stores to be brave and and uh, and just get on with things and of course we'll make mistakes and in which case when we make mistakes we'll apologize if we if they're egregious mistakes and and it's not just tiktok it's the kids who do that side of it but we do all the other social media platforms and and that covers the the spectrum of of society because that is the extraordinary thing about a bookstore it's almost unique, and I would actually claim is unique amongst retailers, is that we appeal to every single age. Kids love us, you know, a baby in a stroller loves being in a bookstore, all the way to the oldest citizen. Everybody's got a, a place at, and a different way of engaging with a bookstore, and very few of that, and that, that translates into the various social media platforms as well. But we have to do it authentically, and we have to do it locally, and that means you don't actually try and do any of that centrally. We, we do a very nice podcast, centrally, um, and with, with the big authors, but that's it. We need to take a break, but when I come back, I had to talk about book bands and J.K. Rowling. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. Before the break, you mentioned libraries and librarians, you mentioned getting in trouble, and you mentioned social media. This is a very odd time in America as it relates to the First Amendment. There's a lot of politicians out there who are yelling about free speech and then turning around and banning books in their states. There are contentious school board meetings about what should be in the school libraries and school districts are banning books at a rate that I personally had thought was all but extinct. It, it feels very repressive again in that way. You've now decentralized the control to a bunch of kids in your local bookstores. Are they facing the same pressures to remove books? Are they making mistakes that blow back onto you, the CEO of the company? Or is that something that you want them to do? I think it does blow back. I think generally most booksellers are sensible people. And I think that most booksellers passionately believe in freedoms of speech um, uh, and and all of the sort of positive things around that. So I think we stand sort of fair and square alongside librarians and would always try and champion the, the widest diversity of opinions. Um, that is not to say also that we, we should ban the other side. I mean, we are a place that should should carry everything. But we do seek to exclude from our stores things that are beyond an acceptable level. If it's racist, anti-Semitic, if it's pedophilia, if it's absolutely egregious in, in all of these different ways, then those books have no part in our bookstore and we don't have them. It is a delicate balance as to sometimes as to where that line should be drawn. And I think that again is something that I suppose at the end of the day ultimately is something that um, I and my colleagues are, are held to account for. Uh, we try not to make mistakes. Um, occasionally we do. But, but I think bookstores generally are places which promote diversity of thought and and proper and good values. Do you feel the pressure from the culture war? My, my email inbox feels the pressure of the culture wars, uh, for sure. And they rage across 
political diversity, gender identity, and all, all of the other issues. Uh, I think our, our job is to navigate those as, as sensibly and, and uh, professionally as we possibly can. But yes, it is absolutely part of our world. You feel it as a CEO. You obviously have a strong idealistic belief in what a bookstore should do, but you've decentralized control of the inventory to the, the shop managers. If you have a shop manager in Florida who says, you know what, we are just not doing Marks and Engels in this store. Capital is not going to get sold in the store. This is We're not going to support communism. Do you support that? Is that is that a decision that you leave up to them? No, I mean it is something we leave up to them, but that doesn't mean that we don't can't have discussions over it, and we do have discussions constant, and uh, and I think that it, that should be a healthy and respectful debate. But you know, if somebody was to say, "I'm not going to sell J.K. Rowling anymore because I disapprove of her views," we would have a a, a sensible and grown up debate as to whether that's a reasonable thing to do. And I think we've so far navigated those in in a intelligent and grown-up way. I picked Marx and Engels because it's sort of like the silliest one. A good bookstore should have all of those authors on the shelf, and that it's what they do. You walked right into J.K. Rowling, right? That this is the one that I think is the the hottest button. It is across, I think, even more treacherous to navigate in the UK. What is your stance there? Is it we're just going to let the bookstore owners do what they want, or is it? This is horrible for our business if we don't sell Harry Potter. It's not horrible for our business. I think that authors will have their own personal opinions, um, and that should not cause us to boycott their books in any way. It is important that we offer the books from the right of the political spectrum, from the left of the political spectrum, but equally on both sides of the gender debates, um, ethnic debates, Black Lives Matter. But but Harry Potter is not on either side of that debate, right? The author now is very Well, the author is is uh, entitled to her own opinion, and right. she has uh, an opinion which she articulates. At the, but I do not believe that we should ever be boycotting individuals' books within our stores because of, of our own personal perceptions of, of their opinions, be they on the right or the left or, or whichever side of whichever debate it is that's going on. And that is extremely important that booksellers hold themselves true to that if they are and there is more pressure on a national bookseller and a national bookseller with the size of stores that we have yeah. uh, than if you are just your own single uh, indie bookseller and obviously if you've just got one store and you're sitting wherever you are you can you can do whatever you like but but equally even in that case you will be held to account by your customers and i think there is a general accepted view that booksellers shouldn't um, be campaigning and, and denying the voice to one side or other of any debate that's going on. Um, but this is a, as you say, this is a really difficult um, uh, terrain for us. And when you are decentralized, that requires an awful lot of conversation because you will get a particular store or individuals within a store with very, very passionate views. And, and our job then centrally is to discuss those and, and talk it through. And um, as with most things, sort of diplomacy and, and talking and thought and, and some level of, of kindness and understanding on both sides will generally get to a decent outcome. Just to make this much more specific, you constructed a system in which lots of young people get to manage the stores a, across the country. If one of your 800 stores says, you know what, we've, we've talked about it, we, we're just not comfortable with whatever J.K. Rowling said on Twitter this week. We're pulling the Harry Potter books. 
that's a decision they would have to tell you about. And then you would have some conversation. Is there a world in which the Harry Potter books get pulled from the shelves or is it, we're going to kindly bring you back to reality? We, we haven't got to a point where something at that extreme has been felt reasonable by anybody working for us. And I, and I think we're extremely fortunate. I think the, the booksellers are not extreme people. I mean, we are very thoughtful and considered otherwise, why on earth are you in bookselling? But do I think that all of these conversations are easy and, and a lot of the debates? No, that they are uh, not at all easy. Um, and as I say, not not on, in this particular case, but in in others, you can find yourself, you know, with with quite a difficult um, judgment as to which side of the line uh, you fall. But but you know, again, I think that has to be done through debate rather than anything that's dictated centrally. The only things that we do dictate centrally is to remove um, the really egregious, um, and and that I have no difficulty in doing at all. Um, if if there's something uh, utterly unacceptable, then it shouldn't be in our stores. The line of what is acceptable, this comes back to my point about America and the First Amendment at this moment. The government speech regulations are on the rise in this country for some unfathomable reason. And mostly it's, we're going to change lines of what's acceptable. And if I had to point that fervor at something and say, this is where it's the reached the hottest pitch, it's YA literature, right? Where it's targeted towards a younger audience, but it, obviously that younger audience is going through a number of changes in their lives. There's often frank depictions of sexuality in these books and parents find them and they lose their minds. That's possibly a place for schools and school boards to be involved. That's possibly a place for libraries to be involved. But that is where bookstores and book talk and social media is at its its highest. Is that a thing that you think about? Okay, we need to make sure that we're constructively part of this debate and we have some ideals here. Or is it YA is, are there lines for YA for you? I think we have to be constructive and, and part of the debate, but I think we we I believe that we should generally stock uh, as broad a range of books as we can. And I haven't myself come across uh, anything within that sphere, which has caused me to say, no, this is unacceptable. And we would not have it, it as we would something like Holocaust denial. We would, we would not have that in our stores. But if the local community is uh, objecting to a particular book, I'll be saying, well, you, you, you don't, there's nothing obliging you either to read or buy this book. And as long as we are curating it sensibly, uh, we're not presenting it to be one thing or or another, as long as we are acting responsibly within our, our stores, then I think we can stand by by what is being published. That Remember, there is a gatekeeper before us, which is the publisher, although one doesn't see that debate. But, but uh, the reality is that we sell books that are, are being published by major and reputable publishers. Uh, if there is a book that is self-published. Um, I would be regarding that with dramatically more scrutiny than I would something that comes from Scholastic, uh, <laughs> for example. Um, and generally, we would hold that those need to be stocked and, and made available across the country, but they just need to be curated um, sensitively um, and and not represented to be something that they aren't. You're doing wonderfully here. You've opened the door to my next completely... Uh, illogical tangent for this conversation. Uh, you talk about self-publishing. There's a lot of self-publishing on Amazon. There's a lot of self-publishing in the world, especially in digital, right? The, the internet is basically a self-publishing machine with a handful of gatekeepers and curators that we think of as platforms. 
right now in, in my world in, in journalism, all we can talk about is chat GPT and how generative AI models are going to write books. And you can go on TikTok and young people will tell you that there's a hundred ways to make money using chat GPT. One of which is to generate small novels and put them on Amazon against search terms, popular search terms, and just collect pennies because you've made so many books. This is a real thing. I don't know if this is actually happening. I don't know if people are making real money. It's a thing people are talking about. Are you worried about that? Are you worried about generative AI and I don't know, the next the next author who's burnt out just letting chat GPT do the work? Well, I suppose that, that sort of takes back to what is the purpose of a bookstore. And a bookstore is somewhere that curates. I mean, even a large the largest of the Barnes and Noble has a fraction of the books that are being that are published from reputable publishers, let alone from all, all of the the nonsense of of, of self publishing. Not all self publishing is nonsense, by the way, but a dramatic amount of it is. And, and <laughs> these these AI sort of bot driven books will be that. If you want to indulge in and and waste your time reading those books, then you know by all means hop onto Amazon and the world is your oyster. But that's not what we do. We curate, and our job is to ideally marry the customer with a really good next book. And if we can make that a book they wouldn't otherwise have thought of, so much the better. Do you have a hard rule against AI generated books? If the next Prince Harry book is written instead of a ghostwriter, he uses chat gpt would you stock that book no i mean i no not 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 as a principle any more than you know if there's an audiobook that's being read by you know a, 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 a bot that's made to sound like george clooney i mean you know that that's sort of kind of whatever it is but but we would nonetheless want to judge books and you've got celebrity books you've got humor books you've got this book and that book but the core of what we uh, sell is narrative fiction and narrative non-fiction to which we ascribe a value judgment. It's either well-written or it's not. It's well-published or it's not. It's well-edited or it's not. Um, it, it's, as a physical product, it's been beautifully designed and typeset and the cover art and all the rest. We judge all of those things and put only the best in front of our customers. That is the job of a bookseller. One thing that is much more central, and you brought up the fact that it's a physical object, but you still run the Nook, which is an e-reader, an e-book store. You do have a bit of a audiobook business, those are much more central. Those are much more internet-driven, platform-driven. Are they growing? Are they a focus for you? Or are they just customers expect that extension from a bookseller so you have them? I think customers expect them and so we have them. Uh, I think we do them perfectly well. It's it's just a different form of reading. Um, again, reading's good. And, and ultimately, if you read on your Nook, if you read on your Kindle, um, you're probably going to end up buying more books, and there may be very good reasons why you want to read on those devices. You know, you've run out of space in your bookstore. You need the font. You need the backlighting. Whatever it is, there are there are reasons. We are in the business of encouraging reading um, and engagement with books and the thoughts that are attached to them. Um, so that's why we have audio, and that's why we have Nook. They're an adjunct and a support to what is the core of our proposition, which is the physical bookstore. You can't decentralize something like the Nook, right? You need to have a central product team and a hardware design team and all of that. Does that operate independently of what's happening in the bookstores? Do you manage that directly? How does that work? Yeah, um, that's run entirely independently. And in fact, since I've joined, we've um, we've invested in new devices and got got a couple more that are coming down the track. All I've said is if we do anything, let's do it really well. And therefore, 
you know, we've we've just launched the audio subscription business, and 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 as I say, invested in a whole new family of Nooks. And and I think that's if you're if you're big enough to be able to make those investments, then just do it really well. Um, and if it encourages sort of a broader engagement with Barnes and Noble and with reading, then that's a very positive thing. We're talking a lot about a company that is a hundred year old company. I think we've talked a lot about the sort of new expectation from employees to be involved in the management of the company, to have a voice in the company. It seems like you are structured well to do that and just the way you run the shops and have the employees on social media. Is that a specific kind of change that you think is lasting? I'm just thinking about in the context of a hundred years ago and your comment of a much more top-down management. If you'd gone back a hundred years ago and told the, the CEO of Barnes and Noble how it would work now, they, they might not believe you. Do you think that this is a persistent change? I think it's um, hopefully a very persistent change. I certainly think it gives one strengths um, that, that would otherwise not exist. What you really have to do is lock in a culture which holds these values um, central to it and everything that pivots around those values. I think that is what booksellers want. Um, and I think if you ensure that that your central direction doesn't come corrupted in any way and, and holds to the same values, then yes, you've got something extremely powerful and, and, and enduring. Uh, and I also think that, that bookstores are sort of almost uniquely strong in, within the retail spectrum because they appeal to such a broad diversity of communities, as I say, every single age group. Um, they are social spaces, and therefore they're, they're effectively inured and protected from all of the sort of fashion trends which so afflict other people. So I, I, I think you know, for, for a well-run bookstore, the future is extremely bright. And you know, 100 years' time, people are going to be reading books. We've seen off Kindle, we'll see off audio, we'll see off all the other things. Not Not because those things are bad, but because actually all they do is encourage more engagement with real books and, and therefore the sale of more real books. What, what we need to make sure is that nothing corrupts our world, uh, that there isn't a monopolistic lurch um, towards Amazon or, or some other thing where somebody dominates the world of books and doesn't respect the physical book. You said that your pitch to Elliot was you'll make a lot of money. Elliot is a private equity company. They are going to want to exit soon. What is the end game? For Elliott Management, Barnes and Noble. Oh, well, I'm sure they will sell it for a, the absolute maximum they can. <laughs> um, and you know, we were a public company. I would hope that we would return to, to to becoming a public company again. We've, you know, we have a, a, a really solid and robust business um, that that's growing. One of the real excitements here is is actually just how few bookstores there are in the United States and how many. Communities used to have bookstores and now no longer do. How effectively booksellers folded in the face of Amazon and thought the game was up, and they thought Amazon was just throwing them online, and then they thought Nook was the end of it, and and it simply wasn't true. There was a collapse of morale, and now that we got our confidence back, we can grow again, and and that's that's extremely exciting. Well, James, that's an amazing place to end it. Thank you so much for being on Decoder. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks again to James Daunt for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit us up directly on Twitter. We're at DecoderPod. On TikTok, we're at DecoderPod. Love your feedback there. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Hadley Robinson. It was edited by Jackson Bierfeld.
The Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.